coaching doesn't mean that you are as good as the person you're coaching. Coaching means that you've got a certain distance from the subject. You've got a certain breadth in your understanding of what works. You've seen a number of different contexts. That is what makes a coach. And so even the most successful of us should have enough sort of self-awareness to realize that somebody can help us to get even better. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance. Scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, today I'm joined by Julian Birkinshaw, Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship at London Business School author of four great books on business management, including Fast Forward and How to Be a Better Boss, both of which we chat about today. He's ranked by Thinkers 50 as one of the top 50 people in the world, thinkers on business strategy. And he teaches really about how to respond to disruptive change in a decisive way. And and that's what we're going to talk about today, talking about how organizations need to respond to disruption and the business climate we are in, Almost all of the businesses that that I'm involved in are being disrupted in some way economically, access to talent, access to capital, access to markets. And so fantastic conversation with Julian around the, the frameworks you need to put in place to enable entrepreneurs to create businesses that are very valuable and how to look at strategy and how to get your business fit for the future. So fantastic conversation with Julian. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I'm Julian Birkinshaw. I'm a professor of strategy and entrepreneurship at the London Business School, and I also run our executive education business. Uh, What does your executive education business mean normally? It means that we are selling a bunch of short courses, typically one week, sometimes a bit longer, to executives from companies around the world. Sometimes these are just open things that anybody can do in in whatever field of leadership or strategy or something. And sometimes they're highly tailored. We'll get a company that says, we want a course specifically for this group of people on this set of issues at this time. Okay. And because you've got that sort of double header in your title, strategy and entrepreneurship, does that mean you specialize in smaller businesses? No, I I mean, I, I, I do span both. In other words, I am very interested in how small startup companies grow, particularly those in the tech space. Um, But I would say that on balance, more of my time is spent helping established firms figure out how to reinvent themselves for for the digital age, for an era when they're having, you know, these little small startup companies snapping at their heels and trying to trying to challenge them. Where do you start with it? If you I'm thinking you have this Goliath who's being disrupted, where does a business like that start? Well, gosh, terrific question. I mean, they, they start with, you know, the fundamental reality, which is that it doesn't matter how, how successful they've been in the past. Uh, they are facing new competitors. You know, it, sometimes it's the Amazons and the Googles. Sometimes it's little startups that they've never heard of. And almost always those new competitors 
are challenging them with new offers or rather challenging their customers with new offers. And those big start, big established companies are saying to themselves, you know, we see what they're doing. We can see that the world is changing, but we're a little bit slow to react. Our, our existing systems and processes, our existing cash cow businesses are just too slow to adapt. And so they have to work very hard on that. Do you have any good examples where people have done this, made made a change? Yeah. So, I mean, you start with the the well-known examples are the ones which have failed, and this is the the good old Kodaks and the Nokias and the Blockbusters who could see that the world was changing but were unable to then actually make the necessary shifts. And having established where they went wrong, you then say, okay, what are some great examples of companies that did get it right? I'll give you one very specific. We can talk about more, but one very specific one that a UK audience will know well was Auto Trader. You probably remember when I, when you were a kid picking up Autotrader as a magazine from the newsagents. Now, Autotrader is 100% online. And this is the key. They are once again the market leader, unambiguously, in secondhand cars in this country. And so to shift from 100% paper to 100% digital and to retain market leadership in that transition is extremely unusual. I mean, I'll tell you the story about how they do it if you like, but that's that's one of the best examples I know. I think it's a fascinating story. I'd love to hear it, I, particularly because it seemed at one point that they were going to lose out to either eBay or Gumtree or some combination of the two. It was the early 2000s. We all remember this period when you know the internet was taking off. All these you know, E-Trades and so, um, eBays and so forth were coming along. And they were smart enough to see that they could see where the world was going. I mean, that's the first step is just to see that, you know, this idea of a paper-based product selling secondhand cars was going to die. In some ways, that was the easy bit. The difficult bit was then to say, we need to set up essentially a separate business unit. Um, they, they were based up in Manchester. I don't know if you know that. They were part of the Guardian Media Group. And they set up a separate business unit down in London, which was essentially their digital startup. And it was given huge levels of autonomy. And it was given the mandate, essentially, to cannibalize the traditional paper-based business. And, of course, that's very easy to say, but very hard to do from a management point of view. Because you've got to have a, a small team at the top who are essentially keeping two very, very different businesses physically apart, allowing one of them to kill the other one, and trying to somehow get everybody to realize that this is this is for the best. Well, it's, it's interesting. I was... Even Reed Hoffman at Netflix, I was reading that he got to the point where when they launched the streaming business, he said, look, I'm not going to have the executives who run the DVD business into the, into the management meeting because they have all the power because they have all the revenue. That's where, the, that's where today's business is. And that sort of the whole business fights against being disrupted by itself. Yeah. I mean, one, one other point to throw into the mix is that in this period, they were partly owned by Apex, the uh, the private equity company. And that actually helped because, of course, private equity, love them or hate them, you know, they're very clear what they're trying to achieve, which is to return a, you know, get a positive return on their investment in a medium time frame. And that, I think, just gave them the extra focus. Whereas in a lot of businesses, if you're dealing with a dispersed shareholder base, if you're dealing with a, a partnership or whatever, you know, it's much harder for people to take the decisive action that sometimes everybody knows is needed, but it's very difficult to get your heads around. Yeah. So you've got that, you've got to understand. So you think that creating a separate business unit is absolutely vital. We did that at Rackspace actually, when we launched um, 
our Windows hosting offering, we put smart people in a different office and told them they didn't you have to use any of the tools or any of the processes. They could really reinvent the business. Yeah, I mean, you've just got to separate it out. And as you say, that's partly around literally the physical separation so that you're not sort of infected by the ways other people are looking at things. But but it's also, you know, freedom in terms of not having to subscribe to human resource policies and, and IT infrastructure deals and all the stuff that is well-intentioned, but actually just slows everything down. So, so anyway, that's one great example. I mean, there's plenty more out there. But, you know, unfortunately, the, these stories are still few and far between. You know, we've learned a few lessons from, from history, but it's more likely that the incumbents will, will struggle to make that adjustment and that they'll succeed. Well, and it's also the fact that often the, the startup is making a compelling offer to a really smallish subset of their customer base. And so they've got this huge sub customer base. I don't know whether it's a deliberate strategy or not, but BT wrote to me recently to tell me that my price had gone up. No, actually, no, they didn't write to me. No, um, they just put my price up. And, okay. then they, and then they were surprised when I canceled my broadband subscription. And, you know, the chap rang me up and said, look, would you not like to continue? Can I not persuade you? I said, no, you didn't tell me you were putting the price up. You just did it, right? So, And so they must be taking a decision which says, we take this action, we know we're going to piss a few people off, but we're, everything will be all right in the end. No, it's, it's a good point. Incumbents are always covering a broad market space. And the, all the startup has to do is to steal a segment of that. Um, and it's often the most profitable people, uh, certainly future profitability. And, and bit by bit, you know, you get, you know, all the various different parts of your market taken away. We experienced that at London Business School. We're in the, the premium business of face-to-face education. And of course, there are digital offerings coming online all the time, trying to steal away our customers. And we continue to believe, I continue to believe that there is a market for, you know, high quality, high intensity, face-to-face interaction. But you know, at the bottom of the market, all of that stuff is being taken away by, you know, online courses. Yes. I, it's, it's interesting because one of the things we were talking about before we started recording was the, this difference of face-to-face versus remote. And here we all are now forced to work remotely, many people for the first time. But it, and I read, I don't know whether it's an introvert, extrovert thing, but there's definitely a sense that some people are missing their, their office environment immensely and other people are rubbing their hands with glee and saying, please don't ever make me go back to an office. I mean, it is fascinating to watch this unfold because a lot of the things that we've now done through necessity over the last literally just two weeks, three weeks at the time we're recording this, are things that have been on offer for many years, right? And and I mean this in two dimensions. One is us offering our students online programs, which we've now had to do. And the other is this whole notion that, that we can work from home for a big chunk of our time. You know, the vast majority of the things that we do, those of us who work in, shall we say, knowledge work, the vast majority of that can be done remotely. And we've all figured out quite quickly that that it works pretty well. It does. I I mean, have you done much remote teaching yourself? A little bit. And and many of my colleagues were just a bit ahead of me on the learning curve on this. But it turns out that, you know, Zoom is the product which I guess most people use. You know, Zoom allows you to have 50 small images of your students up on the screen in front of you. And you can cold call them. You can say, you know, Fred, what do you think about this? you, You can split them into groups. You can actually send them to go off and have a little discussion about something and then come back and share it in a plenary. You can recreate all of that face-to-face stuff online. Yeah. 
historically I've done all the work that I've done with my clients face to face and now I'm doing it all remotely and you can make it work. I just think it takes a little bit longer and I think it's emotionally less rewarding for me. It is. It is just harder work. I mean, most of us get some sort of energy from the social interaction of a face-to-face meeting and do everything back-to-back through a whole series of these online things. It's tiring. It is surprisingly tiring. I come up at the end of the day, I'm, I'm exhausted. Yeah. And so what? how does this fit with your view of how work is changing and the work that you've done? I mean, we've been going through this, you know, sort of huge secular shift, if you like, towards organizing models where we can know, we the bosses can no longer, shall we say, control people through the traditional means of control. You know, we can't necessarily really kind of observe them doing their work because if you're doing knowledge work, by definition, the work's happening in the person's head. And we don't have the same traditional metrics for keeping track. So we've gone through this secular shift We've got increasingly work is being done, sometimes remotely, sometimes in the same offices, but it's being done by people using their brains, making their own choices, bringing their own discretionary effort to work. And as managers, we can no longer sort of tell them what to do. We've simply got to figure out ways of encouraging and nudging them and somehow coaching them so that they get the most out of their own brain power. And the current shift towards virtual working is just exacerbating that trend. And what it means is that our skills as leaders have to become just that much more sophisticated, right? Because, you know, I like to think of the job of the leader nowadays is is nothing more than enabling our people to do their best work and therefore simply creating that framework in which that work can happen. We've got to give them some sense of where they're going and then we just got to give them a huge amount of freedom. So this has been gathering pace for years and we're just bringing it further and, and faster thanks to, thanks to changes in the world. Do you think it's the organizations that were further on the, on the journey will, will suffer less by going remote? Whereas if you were still no, no targets, no KPIs, you know, your manager looking over your shoulders, how your manager knows you've done good work. I mean, they, they're going to struggle. I think that's right. It is fascinating to envision, I mean, so I work in a place where, not surprisingly, managers are generally giving people quite a lot of freedom to do their own thing. And that, of course, works quite nicely in an online virtual environment. I will be fascinated to try to understand how those managers who are, shall we say, old school, used to standing over people's shoulders, used to having sticks as well as carrots, how those managers are actually coping. Because obviously, if you're a worker and you and you want a little bit of freedom, you can literally just sort of turn your phone off, right? Or or not show up. I mean, the ability of a, a micromanaging boss to micromanage you online is just that much lower, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, and if you thought that your staff were coming to work and their intention was to do nothing for eight hours and it's a game of cat and mouse, it's just got much easier for the mice. Those mice can absolutely just just run around, scurry around and, and make all sorts of excuses. And you, you can't observe them. You can obviously observe the outcomes of their actions. But of course, that's very imperfect as a metric anyway. So, so I do like to think that, that this is forcing all the, shall we say, old school managers 
to start to raise their game and so as to learn the skills that those of us who've been trying to preach you know this, these new techniques um, you know all along so and so how could people how could people take some of the things you've been writing about and put them into action I think you've got to start with the uh, my colleague Kathleen O'Connor calls it the ABC which is there's three things people want autonomy they want belonging and they want competence or they want the opportunity to develop their competence uh, and this is from an old body of theory and and the, I like I like it it's just a very beautiful framing because it says if I want to get the best out of my people online or face to face you know I've got to work on giving them the freedom to do their own work that's the autonomy piece and that means being very clear on what is needed but not on how it should be achieved secondly belonging some sense that I'm part of a community and that there's a real kind of purpose to what I'm trying to do much harder to do online but not impossible you know there's lots of ways we can talk about later about trying to create some sort of social social community through online means and then see the competence piece sometimes called mastery what our people need is the opportunity to kind of take something they're already quite good at or something they really want to work on and give them an opportunity to get even better at it and 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 an awful lot of the work that we're sending people off to do on a remote basis actually then plays to that so so that's my kind of simple way of framing the conversation obviously you can kind of dive into some of the specifics does every human being fit your that the abc model so no it, unfortunately human motivation human behavior is endlessly complicated we each have we each have slightly different balances, right? You know, some people are, are absolutely driven by the need for achievement, the need for recognition. Somebody has to pat them on the back and tell them how wonderful they are. There's others who literally are just happy to be, to be given an interesting job to do and get on and do it. So, you know, a good leader, a good boss will always understand his or her people well enough to know which of these things to push harder on than the other. And that really is the essence of good leadership: is understanding people well enough to know which what the balance is. I, I was thinking about the mastery or the competence thing. Do you do you think some people don't have a desire to get better at things? Or I mean, so everybody has got some sort of desire to get better at something. So I'm I'm going to be speaking out of turn here, but uh, I can think of you know teenagers, whether they're my children or not, it doesn't matter who. They want to get really good at online gaming and they are climbing the leaderboard on whatever um, Fortnite or, or equivalent game is, is the hot at the moment. Now, do I think that's a productive use of that person's time? No, I don't. But is it a piece of evidence of, of the need for mastery of something? Yes, it is, right? And some people want to master playing the piano and some people want to be getting better at playing football. Uh, I think there's a genuine underlying human desire to become good at something i mean it's possible there are some people who have literally none of that but i i don't think i've met them okay and so what what do people need from uh from the organization to make this work they need some structure they need some sense of direction and again people vary some people love daily check-ins some people will go a month without supervision i mean at the extreme i have doctoral students, people who are studying for a PhD, and they will literally go months between me talk, checking in and, and when I next talk to them. But what do people need? They need some structure around their life and some sense of what it is that we're asking them to do. And of course, 
doing that effectively then means some level of checking in, some rhythm of checking in. Uh, and I'm now talking particularly about this virtual world where you've got to find the right medium whereby you have those back and forth with that person to make sure that they are comfortable, they've got everything they need to do their job, but that you're not kind of treading on their toes. So, you know, what I've seen working, you know, certainly in my office, and this is now me wearing my hat as heading an executive education business, you know, one one aspect of it, we're doing literally every every two days, we're having a half hour catch up every morning. And then another part of it, we've got check-ins every two weeks because that's that's a business on a much longer cycle where we're developing something new and we've got to give teams a chance to actually sort of think and reflect and build something before we then review it. And you said give people direction. How much of the expectation setting should be top-down versus bottom-up or, or negotiated? My bias has always been to try to encourage the, the bottom-up. In other words, you know, and, and it sometimes manifests in me being a little bit of an absentee boss, I'll be honest about that. But I would love people to figure it out for themselves. But of course, too much autonomy leads to anarchy. In other words, if you really do allow people just to figure it out for themselves, you sometimes get to the point where they're running off in directions which you don't understand, which are actually sometimes even overlapping with somebody else's projects. So uh, as with all these things, that there is a fine line. You know, I would always try to steer towards a bit more autonomy just because the natural bias of most people is is too much control. And it is just worth saying in, in parenthesis, you know, this human need to be in control is one that we've all got to guard against, if you see what I mean, you know. And that's that afflicts all of us in different ways, you know. We're all micromanagers at heart, I suspect. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is there some scientific evidence for that, or is that just, is that your sort of just deeply held sort of observation? I mean, it's a deeply held view. I mean, so there's a, there is research which shows that the people who succeed, sort of climbing up the ladder of the organisation, are the ones who have proven themselves by delivering on task-based outcomes. In other words, they're the ones who always deliver product in time and always get the new sales. And at some point, of course. They are then promoted in positions where they're not no longer delivering things themselves. They're trying to deliver things through others. And of course, that's where a lot of them come a copper. You know, Marshall Goldsmith's got this famous phrase, hasn't he? What, what got you here won't get you there. And so the research basically shows that you know, the control freaks, if you like, you know, do very well up to a certain point. But at some point, they've also got to then learn how to relinquish that and become enablers of others. So that's sort of the uh, that sort of underpinning of the Peter principle, which is that people take that competence at task and they say, well, we'll make you the manager. And that happens so often in startups, you know, because you were you were the first sales guy, so you become the incompetent sales manager. That's right. And the Peter principle, as you say, you know, it's uh, we've all been promoted to our level of incompetence. The most common manifestation of that is the the person who's good at a functional job who suddenly finds themselves managing a bunch of other functional managers. And of course, they almost never get any training. They certainly don't get a whole lot of advice about how to do it. And many of them, many of them fail. And often they don't know why they were successful. I mean, there was a great thing where somebody was saying that I think if you slow down a video of a tennis player playing 
a backhand lob, the tennis player themselves don't even know how they did it. So they could not actually coach anybody how to do it. No, it is fascinating that sometimes the the skills you need to be a good coach are very different than the skills you need to be a good player or a good actor. And and we sometimes forget that because coaching doesn't mean that you are as good as the person you're coaching. Coaching means that you've got a certain distance from the subject. You've got a certain breadth in your understanding of what works. You've seen a number of different contexts. That is what makes a coach. Uh, and so even the most successful of us should have enough sort of self-awareness to realize that somebody can help us to get even better. Yeah. Just going all the way back to the beginning when you were talking about strategy and entrepreneurship, do you have a model for entrepreneurship? I mean, do you are you teaching entrepreneurship or do you have models that help entrepreneurs avoid pitfalls or so look, I'll give you two two of the framings that I use that I find helpful helpful and, and, and most of your listeners will be familiar with them. The one that's become very much in vogue in recent years is the so-called lean startup model. And you know, rather than the notion that you should write a business plan that kind of thinks through everything that you, you plan to do in detail in order to get money, you do things in a very iterative you know, trying things out, learning by doing minimum viable product way. Uh, that has become, even amongst, you know, the parts of the entrepreneurship world that use venture capital, that has become a very effective way of helping vent, uh, helping entrepreneurs to experiment and to try things and to not be afraid to change their pr- approach. So that's the way of looking at the world, which has become hugely popular, which I buy into. The other framing which I like, which is now getting into the whole growth piece. You touched on it a minute ago. It's sometimes called the Griner curve. Is, is that a phrase that's familiar? I'm not sure it is. So there was a famous Harvard professor called Larry Griner, and he wrote a, a famous article like 40 years ago called Evolution and Revolution as Organizations Grow. And he said, essentially, every company from you know a one-man band through to you know, a thousand people goes through a predictable series of crises which get resolved, hopefully, in order for the company to get to the next stage. So, you know, the one that you mentioned is, you know, the entrepreneur who thinks that he or she can do everything. And at some point they realize they've actually got to then give a little bit of power to a few people working around them in order to grow. But of course, by doing that, what they're doing is they're actually delegating and allowing a few other people to have a point of view. And sometimes if you take that too far, then there's a risk that you have the opposite problem, which of course is that there's no more coordination and they're running off in different directions. And sometimes you have to then re-centralize things as well. So so it's a beautiful piece. It's It's not perfect in terms of he didn't predict, of course, exactly how the world would change. But this notion that we go through these predictable crises and that we can come out the other side of them with a slightly more thought through model about how we think it's the next stage of growth. That's that's what I like about that. Okay. And are there some practical implications in terms of numbers of people in a business or or revenue or that's right. So it's I mean he does it much more in terms of the number of people than the revenues. In other words, the the crises are almost always a function of, shall we say, internal bottlenecks rather than external ones um, in terms of who's making decisions, who has the tools to do the job. You know, one of the ones we I didn't touch on, but comes a bit later is at some point you have to move from 
being able to kind of pretty much know everybody in the company and doing through things through informal mechanisms to building formal systems and structures and only ever managing the exceptions. And, you know, once you get to 100 odd people, you can't know everybody and you've got to then start to put in place formal formal rules and procedures to get to the next stage from 100, if you like, to 500 people. So that's the way it, that's the way it works. Right. And so you you hit that sort of Dunbar number and you either do what W.L. Gore do and you say, we're only ever going to build this in multiples of 100 or you have to put process in place. Exactly. So that's right. Dunbar's number is around 120, 150 or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, I encourage people to read the article. I, I haven't got it quite right. But this this notion that you go through a crisis and then you come out the other side with a slightly different model. That's that's the essence of it. I'll find it and put it in the show notes so that people can uh, can dig it up with ease. The one of the other things that uh, I heard you speak about a while ago was the notion of employee on uh, net promoter score. Shall I just let you riff on that topic because <laughs> because I, I was intrigued by your observations. You know, the net promoter score has been around for twenty years now. It came out of out of Bain and Company, I think it was. And and so I was writing a book which ultimately was published called Becoming a Better Boss. And I was all for helping bosses to see the world through the eyes of their employees. And that's not an original insight. You know, the notion that you should walk a mile in somebody else's shoes has been around forever. But I was kind of playing with that notion and saying, well, that's interesting because, you know, the definition of marketing that I like is seeing the world through the eyes of your customers. So I started going back to all the marketing tools that I knew and saying, let's take that marketing tool and let's apply this to the world of management. And so, of course, I came came up with the realization that the net promoter score, um, which, of course, is about do your customers not just you know like buying your product, but do they like you so much that they're prepared to actually promote and tell the world how wonderful you are? I said to myself, let's turn that into a metric that figures out how good a boss you are, or if you're working in a large company, how good all of my bosses are. And so the, the, the specific question was, we call it the Net Management Promoter Score, NMPS, was you know, to what extent would you actually recommend your boss, your actual boss, the one you have today, to family, friends, colleagues as somebody that they should work for? And of course, that's a, a tough test because we know there's a lot of bosses out there who are not very well regarded by their people. And so this wasn't a sort of a woolly, what do you think of the quality of management in my company? It was, is your boss personally somebody? And that's, so I'm not sure how much it's taken off. I've seen a few companies pick up on it um, as a way of trying to sort of tap into that very, very specific thing about my own boss is ultimately the thing that makes me either stick around in the company or leave the company. And so I need to sharpen my emphasis on that. Yeah, I find it fascinating because I think lots of companies say, would you recommend London Business School to a friend or colleague? And I can see no evidence that that is telling people anything of use because people join companies, but then I've seen people say 85% of your day-to-day engagement is driven by your team leader or your manager. So but I can see why lots of people wouldn't want to roll out that score because... No, I mean, the trouble is it, it's just too sharp. It's actually too personal, right? And in principle, everyone says, yeah, that's a great idea. But then you say, are you actually going to do it? And they say, oh, well, maybe we'll try it in a little pilot study on the side. Or something like that. With a manager who'll get good scores. Yeah, exactly. Yes. But, but I, I have seen some companies, I think 
you know, I know some people in Unilever tried it. I know some people in Roche, the pharmaceutical company, tried it. Um, so it's not completely failed to take off. What was the thing you f- you were most fascinated to find out when writing the How to Be a Better Boss? So I was trying to, as I say, put myself in the shoes of the employee to try to figure out what made a really good boss. Uh, and, of course, it was very easy to find people telling me what made a bad boss. Um, but I was also gratified to see that, you know, you could also get some of these tales of, of, of the wonderful bosses who, you know, completely transformed their lives. So writing that book helped me realize that, that in fact, the, the gap between being a bad boss and a good boss isn't huge. In other words, there are many smart people out there who are falling into some fairly obvious traps around how much they are controlling things, for example. Little tricks like just simply being much better at, you know, giving people praise and calling out when somebody's done a good job, you know, doing proper personal reviews, you know, catch-ups once a month about how you are feeling. I mean, these are, none of this is rocket science. And that's the trouble is that all of these techniques have been around forever. And I was gratified, as I say, to realize that you've almost got to do this through personal coaching, but you can get somebody who's who's got, got some fairly sort of bad feedback from their people. You can get them with a two or three little tricks to actually become quite well thought of as long as they then kind of stick around with it. So, you know, it's very hard to break old habits, but, you know, the whole purpose of kind of coaching, and, and, and I doesn't, don't mean necessarily having a private coach, coaching can be co-coaching, you know, you can buddy up with a colleague and, and you can share notes, that actually doing some of that stuff can fairly quickly get you into some much better habits. So that was for me the best thing about writing that book, and it's helped me a lot personally as well. Uh, your staff, your staff scores have gone up, have they? Uh, I, yes, I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm much more aware of my own my own limitations, my own weaknesses, and and it's it's kind of you know because I'm I'm always starting projects and I'm running ahead and I'm I got a thousand ideas and. And sometimes people keep telling me this, you know, it's, first of all, it's not all about you, you know, you've got to make sure that you give other people opportunities. And sometimes you've just got to hold off on doing some of the things you're trying to do. <laughs> Personal psychotherapy. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting you mentioned praise, because when I go into organizations, there are two things that nobody has ever complained to me about. No employee ever has complained that they get praised too often for doing a good job. And nobody else, nobody else has ever complained that they get over communicated with. You know, uh, I, they just keep telling me what's going on here. It drives me mad. Nobody's ever said that to me. Exactly. No, it's worth bearing that in mind, isn't it? Well, particularly now that we are, uh, now that we're all remote, people can't over-communicate. Yeah. Now, I just dis- I discovered this is called the marathon effect. Have you heard that expression? No. So you go to the London Marathon or whatever. You know, they set the elite runners off first, right? And they run off at some crazy fast pace. And then they set the thousands and ten thousands off behind. And of course, the tens of thousands behind have no idea what's happening at the front of the race. And they never will until it's all over, if you see what I mean. And, and that's exactly what happens in change programs, particularly in a crisis, because, you know, the leadership team is scurrying around, coming up with all these plans for things that need to be done differently. And they're completely, they're so busy and they're completely oblivious of the fact that they left the rest of the organization way behind so you know, the answer is obvious the answer is you know better communication both in terms of what what's being done but also in terms of what work is being done what what task forces what's being thought about 
you know, right now that is that is so important because, you know, I'll, I'll get emails from people saying, have you thought about this? And the answer is almost always, yes, yes, I have. And there's a whole task force working on it. I should just have been a little bit more helpful uh, in communicating that. Yes. Yes. And I see that at the moment where, you know, some clients are doing daily huddles that roll all the way up and the CEO is doing a video call at the end of every day. And just to say thank you, praise a few people, even give people some, you know, celebrate big wins. Um, you know, the power of bad. Bad news is four times more powerful than good news. And nobody wakes up in the middle of the night having happy thoughts. So, you know, the staff are going to be, you know, room, rumor and gossip will spread and needs to be headed off. Julian, what, um, other than being a better boss, what, you've written a number of books. Yeah, so the, the Being a Better Boss was, um, I'm guessing, six years, seven years ago, these things all blur together. The more recent book that I'm kind of proud of is, is it's called Fast Forward with a Swedish friend, Jonas Riederstrahler. And that book was all about strategic agility. I mean, it's, we touched on it right at the beginning. It's all about this notion that, you know, that as we, the world becomes more, more digital, we've got to much become, you know, much better able to harness the power of digital. And of course, partly that's just simply about moving more quickly in order to, to capitalize on the opportunities. That's the fast bit of the title. But forward, the forward bit of the title is this notion that we need to sort of be a little bit more in touch with with our employees, with our customers on, a, on an emotional level. And, and what I mean by that is that you know, it's easy to fall into the trap that because there's lots of data out there, that what we should be doing is quantifying everything and making sure that our decisions are based on hard data and truth. But in fact, the truth is that decision-making and, the, and you know, success in business has always had this strong emotional element to it as well. And that paradoxically, even though there's more data than ever, to some extent, the companies that succeed are the ones who are actually able to, to actually build on their emotional conviction, their beliefs about the way that the world should be, rather than just micromanaging or sort of test marketing things to death. So fast plus forward was my kind of you know, formula, if you like, for what companies have to do in the digital age. And as we're trying to recover from this crisis would be a good a good book and a good template to pick up and have a look at. Absolutely. And of course, you know, a lot of things have changed in these last few months. But but yeah, this basic principle I think is going to continue to to resonate completely. You know, we you know, we've got this notion of agility. I mean, I would twin with that the the related notion of resilience. And if you like agility agility is all about managing the upside opportunities. Resilience is all about mitigating the downside risks. And any strategic planning process I've ever seen has always been a little bit linear. But the truth is the world is never linear. The truth is it's the world is full of these economic shocks. And the companies that are able to react quickly, whether it's a positive thing or whether it's negative things, will obviously be the ones that, that endure and, and sustain. Julian, as you've gone through life, you've picked up a lot of, uh, a lot of wisdom. Is, is there something now that you know that you wish you'd known at some point in the past? Crikey. You know, there's a lot of, of learning that I, I mean, I read a lot, but I'm so conscious that one, <laughs> this might sound really obscure, but I'm conscious that I never figured out the basics of sort of, you know, almost like economics and philosophy and sort of the way that sort of people have thought about making sense in the world. I, I, love, I jumped straight into the contemporary literature without feeling I ever got a sense of how 
the world worked on a sort of a much more kind of human basis. And, and that's that's a very present in my mind today because everything we've been to doing the last few years, which is all about you know, making money and short-term profit maximization and the whole, the whole Brexit thing for that matter, you know, suddenly becomes so much, so much less relevant in a world where we want to kind of create some of the basic belonging and humanity and stuff. And so that's why I'm kind of going back to, to the roots of philosophy to try to understand these issues around Quite This sounds going to sound a bit heavy, but the meaning of of life. I was just rereading yesterday, Viktor Frankl. Have you heard of Viktor Frankl? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, man's search for meaning, mankind's search for meaning. I mean, you know, he lived through the Holocaust, which is as extreme as extreme gets. But, you know, a little bit of what we're living through right now requires us to try to make sense of the world in a very different way than we did when we took everything for granted. Yes. No, it's a fantastic book. And other than other than your own books, are there other things that other books you think people should pick up that you've had an impact on you throughout your life? So I love Danny Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. Uh, he is the kind of the father of behavioral psychology. He won a Nobel Prize um, along with the late Amos Tversky. Um, so his book is called Thinking Fast and Slow. I just love that book. If you want something a little bit recent there's a couple of guys at harvard business school kareem lakhani is one of them it's sort of strategy in the artificial intelligence age I and mean, we can dig out the exact reference i can't quite remember it off the top of my head we'll put it in the show notes and have you got anything when you think about the current uh, our current circumstances that you think a, a business owner or entrepreneur or ceo should go and reach for off the shelf or from amazon gosh i mean so my former colleague, Don Sull, wrote a book after the last crisis, and it was called The Upside of Turbulence. Uh, and that was pretty cool, actually, because, of course, he was talking about all the ways that companies can, can actually sort of generate some, almost like some benefits out of, out of turbulence. And then the other one that is very relevant today is a, a famous Michigan professor called Carl Weick, W-E-I-C-K, and along with Kathleen Sutcliffe, he wrote a book called Managing the Unexpected, which was all about what he called high resilient, high reliability companies. In other words, companies that can't afford to make any mistakes, you know, power plants, you know, he went to, worked on a, an aircraft carrier, I think it was. What he did was he figured out the sort of the recipe for how you build companies that are completely resilient, if you see what I mean. So, again, huge lessons today in terms of not so much maximizing efficiency, but more maximizing reliability and resilience. Brilliant. Julian, thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Okay. You're most welcome. Thanks. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast, and there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read 
on all things relating to scaling up high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me. Share your questions and comments, and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.